0: Hi, this is Dan from Rehydrate. Before we start, I just wanted to make a quick note and apology for my audio in this episode. I had some technical problems and accidentally used my laptop microphone uh, to record the audio from my side. Um, So I hope you'll still listen. It's a great interview with Priya, and thank you again to her very much for joining me. Welcome to the Rehydrate interview series a forum for discussion of Liu Syshin's Remembrance or His Past series. Each episode, I'll be speaking with a guest about their thoughts and experiences on reading this series. Spoiler warning for listeners, this episode will contain spoilers for all the Three-Body Problem, The Dark Forest, Death's End, and any other media we happen to discuss. My name is Dan, and today I'm joined by Priya. Welcome. Hi, Dan. How are you doing today?
1: I'm all right. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. So um, let's tell a little bit about yourself.
1: So I have a background in English literature. That's what I majored in in college. And this is actually the first book that I'm like reading that I've seriously gotten into in like many, many years because like just like life has been getting in the way. And mm. I haven't been able to read like I used to, but I randomly picked this up, and I couldn't stop reading. I was like binge reading, so you're probably familiar with that feeling after you binge read something. You need to talk about it right but yeah, no like literally nobody that I know in in real life has read this book, so um, mm. I was really excited to find your podcast and very happy that you invited me onto it to talk about it. Cause like it's like this this urge that I have to just like get my thoughts out there. So thank you.
0: Totally. I mean, that's almost exactly the reason I started the podcast because I also wanted somebody to talk to you about it. So I just forced my friends into reading it.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. I'm like trying to force my husband into reading it now, but like he won't pick up the damn book. So I'm like, well, I need to talk to somebody. So <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you said you have an uh, English literature uh, degree.
1: Yeah, I'm actually currently like in between jobs right now because of you know COVID and stuff. Um, oh, okay, but also you have to get like creative with like a degree in English, right? So <laughs>
0: right. So, so um, what does that look like? Do you do you teach or do you write or?
1: Um, I used to tutor. Um, I used to tutor uh, English, like writing. Recently, I was working for a startup, and then things went downhill because of covid and then now i'm like just trying to get my kid through uh remote learning so that's what's yeah. up
0: <laughs> yeah so how did you find this book
1: where i live usually people just like abandon books like in the lobby of the of the apartment building so we usually try oh. and pick them up if they look interesting so it was either my husband or i who randomly found the three body problem just like lying around somewhere in the lobby and one of us must have picked it up and it literally sat on the shelf for probably three years and no (laughs) one touched it and then I was like I do love sci-fi I took a sci-fi class in college and I remember like that was some of the the most like fun reading that I did as part of my major so I was like okay this is probably a good place to start because then I know I won't I probably won't quit like after a few chapters, hmm. so I started and then I was, uh, by the time I got to the end, I was like, I'm glad that there are two more books and like, I need <laughs> to have them immediately. So then the binge reading started. So yeah, <laughs> that was my intro to the book.
0: Had you known anything about the book? Before? I mean, like you said, it sat on your shelf for three years, but did no, you?
1: No, I actually went into it with zero information Based on, like, the back cover, like, just whatever it said in the back, I knew that there were aliens involved. But, like, you know from the pacing of book one that it's kind of unclear. Like, you know that there's going to be something to do with aliens when um she's basically uh, the main character becomes a member of what is essentially the Chinese version of SETI. Yeah. But it was really interesting. Like I I know that in other episodes of your podcast you've talked about how like the pacing of book one is a little is a little bit interesting. It's a little bit weird. And I kind of liked it because it creates more of this feeling of mystery when you know that there's aliens involved somehow, but you don't know quite how. I really enjoyed that aspect of the first book.
0: Were you thrown at the beginning of the book where they kind of just threw you into the cultural revolution like that threw me when I first read it?
1: Yeah, it did. But I had I had a feeling that like it would probably not stay there if that makes mm. sense. Like, yeah, and also because it was um it was dealing with like physics. Yeah, that it, yeah. it it seemed like okay, this is probably telling us something that happened in the past, and it's probably going to progress beyond that in future chapters, but. It was really interesting the way that it set up like all the groundwork for that.
0: Definitely, and it and it pays off like really really well at the end, right? Like you can yeah. kind of see how that formed all of her opinion. And yeah, you know, I've, I've said a bunch of times that like I think like Yo and J is like probably like, the most formed character of all of the books. Like I think Liu is not overall great at writing characters. Like they're mostly just like there to drive the plot forward. But I think Yo and J is. Probably the exception to that, you know, she I think has a very strong character and really strong motivations. And she kind of has an arc. I I think looking back on it, I found her character to be the most interesting. And like then, especially understanding her background and, and her trauma from the cultural revolution.
1: Yeah, totally. And it it it's you know that this is a person who's coming from who has a history of being scarred by humanity. And you can understand why in the end she decides like humanity's not worth saving and right. or if you know like we need to be replaced not there's no salvation on the horizon for us and i remember when i was um uh reading about the part where um she's watching all this deforestation taking place and she's given a book then after reading the book she comes to the conclusion that there's no way that human beings can fix themselves basically that we need something outside of us and that was mm. the first moment where I got the sense that, okay, like, this is where they're going to, this is the the premise upon which, like, the alien invasion is going to happen.
0: Uh, you got it way sooner than I did. <laughs> it took, it took me <laughs> like, way longer than that.
1: <laughs> knowing that, like, you know, she's, she's looking to some outside force for whatever it is that she finds lacking in humanity. It just, it was a very interesting way to um, build the foundation for what happens going forward. And so you said you took a
0: sci-fi class in school. Um, did, did it focus a lot, like what kind of, was it different, because some of the different genres of sci-fi too, there's like hard sci-fi, there's like more character-driven sci-fi.
1: Um, yeah. You
0: know, a bunch of others, like, so did it focus on any of those kinds or was it mostly like the classics?
1: Um, so we did read a bunch of classics. We read um, some Asimov, but there was also, in my opinion, so like, I'm not like a very science-minded person. Like I love sci. I do love science, but mathematical science just goes straight over my head. Mm -hmm. So that's not what I read sci fi for. Obviously, I read it for more of like the, like, I think good sci fi makes you think about a lot of fundamental truths that you know, about like the world and the nature of human beings. And if sci fi can get you to really think about those things deeply, I think it's done its job. I think like that's what I look for in, in in a good sci-fi book. I think this book does that as it as it moves forward, it does it more and more, I feel. Like you were talking about the character development. I got the sense in the first in the first book, I got the sense that there's just all these random characters, and I'm right. not feeling that much of an attachment to any of them. Ye Wenji just um she she intrigued me because like she's kind of like the reason for all of this. I also, I, I honestly didn't feel like her character was that fleshed out later on. Like in the beginning, it, it sets her up, but then it, it doesn't build her character too much beyond that. Whereas I feel like the characters that he creates later on, like Loji and Cheng Xin, those are much more complex characters. I feel it's almost like in the process of writing, the author is learning that he can do so much more with the characters. And I think that's also where, um, because I I know that a lot of people have said that they have trouble following all the characters because of the names. Audience, I mean, readers who don't have um, experience with uh, Chinese names. In the beginning, I was struggling with that. But then once the characters started becoming more complex, I found myself struggling with that less. So if that makes sense.
0: It definitely makes sense. I think the, I struggled with that too. Um, I think especially to me, like I think the most dark example is in the beginning of Dark Forest when there's like all these new characters turn at you at once. <laughs> and so like, there's just like tons of them and like the, and it's hard to keep them straight. But yeah, I mean, I, I think like once they find their voices and they have like motivations that you understand, it, yeah, especially like the main characters like Ji and Chung Xin, like I think they, they are very well defined too. I think that Yuan probably has like I said before, like, the, the biggest arc, because, like, you know, she starts out and she kind of, like, has doubts, you know, if you remember in the chapters where she goes to the village, and then she kind of meets some of the, like, people in the village, and she starts having, like, it seems like she's starting to have second thoughts about what she did. It's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. But then, like, she goes and visits her mother, and her mother's, like... She's living in her tower, and she lies to her about like the her the relationship, and then she tells right. her husband to go and tell her, you know, don't bring this up, don't bring up your father again, right? <laughs> and then, just, yeah. and then, she, then she's like, okay, I did the right thing, I got it, like m- all my doubts are gone. <laughs> but then yeah. she also has like more doubts later on, like when um, Evans becomes like a hardcore Adventist, and she's more of a redemptionist, right?
1: Yeah, I think there's, that's yeah, there's, true. Yeah,
0: there's, 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 I think there's more subtlety to her. Than otherwise.
1: I don't know if I missed this, but I think the reason her whole arc just left me very dissatisfied at the end was because like, okay, she's done all this stuff, like her motivations were kind of understandable for someone in her position. But in the end of it, it's like, what happened? Like, what was her consequence for this? Is it just that she has to live with this now? Or is it that? like was she, did she actually face any real consequences at the end of her life or w- was it such that like all the consequences that you would expect her to face cuz she she did kill two people one of whom was her husband yeah uh and doom all of humanity no big deal <laughs> right but it seems like in the end it's just that nothing really happens to her
0: yeah. I mean, I got the impression it was like, they're just onto bigger things now, you know, like right. we're, in the, we're in the crisis here now. Like we have better things, bigger things to worry about than you killed some people. Like <laughs> we just trust are coming in 400 years. <laughs> like, right, so that's like, true. Yeah. That's I mean, I, and, and I think maybe, you know, even at the beginning of dark forest, she tells uh, about the, about the dark forest principle, right. And the cosmic sociology. So I think like she does have some uh, reservations about what she did uh, because right. Otherwise, she wouldn't have told him. And because of that, you know, he's able to more or less treat the trisolarins and the, you know, by using the deterrence um, thing in, in the future. So
1: yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe that
0: says her way of kind of paying back, you know, the the harm that she did cause.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my my question to you is that do you think that after she actually read what the trisolarins had um, had planned, do you think that she was like, Oh crap, what did I do? Or was it just like <laughs> like like did she really think that the Tricelarans were going to be like this benevolent race of of being that was going to come in and just create like there's a lot of imagery, by the way, that I um found interesting about Eden and the Garden of Eden. Of course, there's like literally the Garden of Eden where Luigi is. Is kind of just living in luxury <laughs> as a wall facer, but then there's also <laughs> a lot of ideas surrounding the garden in the first book too. Where you know it all begins with uh, Ye Wenji looking at deforestation, which is just like a destruction of Edenic state that the earth was once in. It's almost like she has been painted as a sort of Eve, who is the first to receive the knowledge literally of the Tricelarans, and then she is the one who ultimately leads to humanity being banished from it. So mm, I I I I got the sense that like it was it was just naive to think that only humans are corrupt and that anything that comes from outside of humanity could be pure. And I wonder if she had that like was that her thinking or was was she just thinking that anything but humanity would be better for for this planet
0: i mean my take was that it, it was the latter it's like she she saw all the ills and, and i think your your government meeting thing is, is is definitely appropriate like she probably did see like that it's like oh the human i think she even mentions it when we're just talking to evans about like how humanity just like destroys all of the nature right and so uh, and what does evans call himself like a pan species communist or something yeah uh, anyway yeah so it's a it's, uh, humanity is doomed the planet and like beyond redemption i always saw her as like maybe like in her older age kind of softening up i don't think she was necessarily concerned with the trisolarans coming here and what she's what she got out of the tapes or whatever you know she started seeing the the reports coming back from the sophons that the, the police read to her yeah i, I guess I, I thought maybe like in her older age maybe she's like softening up around the human race because like they do have a lot of chapters as they're talking to her grandkids or not maybe like grandkids but other kids in the uh right right you know? yeah
1: when she spoke to the grandkids she seemed like a total or the little kids she seemed like a yeah. totally different person
0: and then yeah, i think she sees uh is you know sort of is sort of the same mold because Loji knew um her her daughter right so um, yeah i was a
1: little bit confused actually about that timeline um like when exactly her um her conversation at the beginning of the dark forest with loci takes place is it like after all is said and done like after yeah. the, the Sofans have already arrived. And it seemed like she basically told Loji about the dark forest theory, but perhaps not in very in a very clear and direct way. Is, yeah. is that what happened? Because I, I kept wondering, like, what is exactly the connection between Loji and, and uh, Yei Wenji? Because at the end of the dark forest, she must have been significant enough to him that he goes, and starts digging his own grave next to her grave. Hmm. So it just seemed like it was deliberately like a loose end that was, that leaves the reader to just ponder what is their connection. It seemed deeper than just this one conversation that occurred between them.
0: And so I always took it as like the prologue of Dark Forest takes, takes place like, shortly after the end, the end of uh, Three-Body Problem. Okay. Because uh, at the end of Three-Body Problem, you know, she sits on the cliff and she says, like, oh, it's my sunset and sunset humanity, right? In the beginning of Dark Forest, like, they talk about her being really old, really frail. And then, like, she even says, like, I'm not going to have another chance to talk to you again. So I think she knows that, like, it's the end for her, right? This is sort of like her dying dying wish to kind of impart this knowledge He's, right yeah like, like you said she he, she doesn't tell him like directly like dark forest principle like everyone's gonna like, kill each other but yeah right. she says like all right Lord, do you, you know about the cosmic cosmology or whatever and then also society was it sociology, sociology. No, philosophy <laughs>
1: or sociology sociology yeah, yeah. yeah
0: so she tells him um yeah maybe you should study cosmic sociology put those two things together right? because like well you kind of like floats around and I think he even specifically mentions, like, he knew his daughter. And that's why he was there in the first place to see uh, Yang Gong's grave, right? And then yeah. Ye Jay also happened to be there. So I think the connection is there. Uh, I don't know if they ever knew each other. Uh, I'm not sure if they ever, like, even met before then. Uh, but that Yeah, was the it, it I got. seemed
1: very odd to me that he would go and dig his grave next to hers because it seemed like there was some deeper connection between the two that, yeah. like, is left for the leader to spec the reader to speculate. I just really, really love Loji's character. I think he's mm-hmm. like the I think he starts off as like such a troll. And um <laughs> I I'm really curious, what did you think about the whole like fictitious character, like this this woman that he created for himself?
0: Yeah, yeah it's it's my least favorite part of the series by far, <laughs> for sure. Like, you know, when I was start, when I was like convincing my friends to start doing this podcast and they, I knew they hadn't read it. And I was like thinking, I'm like, all right, well, I know book three is awesome. I, I, they're going to love it. Like everyone loves it. It's, it's great. Right. And then like death, uh, death for is also really good, especially after they, they make the break, um, after they, they go into the future, like that part is like, you know, awesome, but then right. I are like, "Oh man, I have to go through the part where he's imagining his girlfriend, and then they finally the, then Dasha has to find his girlfriend that looks exactly like her. And the girl has no agency around her, and she's just kind of like a, a toy for him to play with." And it, uh, I, I don't I like know. it. No, <laughs> and
1: and it's so funny because I think the, the the payoff to all of that is that when he's like having this, he's like describing to to Dasha that that like he wants this woman who looks like this. She's like this, she has this personality. And yeah. then um I think Dasha like draws her for for him and yeah. he's like, Oh my gosh, that's her. And he's he's like, You're a genius. And he's like, <laughs> No, I just know how men think.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially men like him, because he spent a bunch of time with Wong Miao, right? And Wang Miao like in the beginning is probably very similar because Wang Miao also has like some kind of creepy um uh, comments about Yang Dong is, like, took pictures of her secretly and, like, had him up or whatever. So I think, like, in the beginning, like, Lu Aji and uh, Mommy Miao are supposed to be similar. Obviously, Lu Aji becomes wise beyond his years and, you know, even he becomes, like, what, 200 years old or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, so he becomes a lot more interesting later. And it is interesting in the beginning, like, how he kind of drifts in and out. And I'm right, right now, I'm like rereading for the podcast, the, the, the main the main podcast, like the very beginning of, of Dark Forest. And Boatis is like really funny right now because he's like, he's accepting that part that he's the wall facer. And then he's like, all right, fine, I'm a wall facer. Give me this gigantic house with like servants or whatever. All right, there's the, you know, there's wine at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Who get, get that for me? <laughs> and, and they're like, wine's like, it's part of the plan.
1: I know that it makes you wonder, like, what would happen if you picked these like random people that you thought had potential and just gave them free reign over everything like finances um yeah. just like not worrying about the con I mean of course everyone's worried about worried about the consequences but it's such a bizarre situation for, for like the world to be in that they're, um, that all of their hopes rest in these few handful of people and they have no clue why. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: But it, it really makes you think like, like it, to, to imagine a world where basically the only ideas that are safe are the ones that are inside of your brain. And yeah, the moment it's said it, it's ruined.
0: Right. Yeah. The whole premise, the the wall uh the wall facer wall breaker premise is super interesting. Um it's a really interesting take on like yeah, on, on sci-fi and like how the only way to defeat the charge is like not tell anybody and like uh you know have like the secret plan and then not only like only tell people at the very end. So and, and then you know that the four different personalities of the wall facers are also like, you know, interesting takes on humanity. Like we have the, the strong man of Ray Diaz and like the intellectual right. of um of Heinz. And kind of like, I guess, the coward of Frederick Taylor. <laughs> like He's like, or I don't know if he's a coward, but it was like a weird plan to like tri- triple cross. I, I don't know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very weird plan of his.
1: But it's funny how like Woji eventually kind of like borrows little elements of other wall facers plants and like kind of yeah. incorporates it into his own execution, which is really just perfect. I was confused about one thing. And I, I I'm wondering if it's like, if you're supposed to be confused about it. Why do the Tricelarans find Luigi to be such a threat? Like, ultimately, like, he proves to be the one who cracks it. But how would they know? It's been established that they're not really good at, like, strategy.
2: Yeah.
1: So how do they, how can they recognize someone who can form a good strategy, if that makes sense? And also, the only guess that I had is because the Sophons were there when um, Ye Wenjie spoke to Loji. Do they think that based on that, he must have information that he himself doesn't know that he has?
0: Yeah, that's totally my guess. Like because th- that—that's what I was going to say. Was yeah, like the Sophons are there. I'm obviously like Ye Wen-ji is a very important person, so the Sophons would have been monitoring her any any movement that she has, right? Right um, And they can move really fast anywhere, so the the, the I think she is a person with interest to to kind of see that and, and so based off of their knowledge that he can uh he knows about sociology and astronomy or or cosmology or whatever he studied, I think they put it together like oh he can figure out the dark because like she tells him the dark force principles right that there's finite matter or the finite number of uh, of matter in the universe, and I forgot the first one, but anyway she tells him the the axioms of of cosmic sociology. And my, my take was that they figured out that it was dangerous enough where first they order to kill him, right? They try to get, they, they tell Mike Evans to kill him, but Mike, Mike Evans, uh, you know, dies in, in Operation Kujang. Then they tell the second wall breaker to kill him and they try with the, uh, the automobile accident and try to shoot him too. I think they they figured out that he he knows enough about the dark force principle, and they know how dangerous it is in the world. Because like if you remember in the third book, they talk about like location being like so secretive and like so uh, taboo of information to give up. So they know if like he can both find Tressleris and broadcast it out, because he knows about the the dark force principle, then he's the most dangerous thing to Tressleris. And it turned out to be true, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that makes that totally makes sense. I think also in all the assassination attempts on him, um, there's yeah. a lot of comic relief in the latter part of the book where he yeah. wakes up in the future and like just everything is trying to kill him.
0: Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the like, I think the sign he like almost falls off like into a hole or something, right? And like a sign falls on him, or like there's like a, something that falls off of the tree. Yeah, Dashers always there, like getting out of the way.
1: Yeah, and and like this unlikely character of Dasha is just like inserted into every situation to kind <laughs> of like just save the day, like yeah. repeatedly.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, because like, he wasn't there, he probably would have died from the initial gunshot. And like he, sa- you know, saved him kind of indirectly in the beginning by like being the most competent at his job before the wealth pacer program is announced. Like they're all flying to New York. And they were saying like all the other guys had like, complications, but Dasher's program was like the easiest to to execute because it's the simplest. So I think like even in the beginning, like he's already saving his life indirectly, and then yeah, with the gunshot and all the other stuff. Like it's like a constant uh, stream of bloody like, being his, his own worst enemy <laughs> and being uh, being always in danger by not like paying attention enough. I guess it
1: was really it was really fun to read. Um, it's always really fun to read about the way that different different people think of the future, like Mm. what will the future look like? I think like this version of the future, I was like, Oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like just everyone just starts living underground. Right. (laughs) And it's just, Oh, well, I guess that could work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did you see or or read uh, wandering earth? What's that? Oh, it's another uh, short story that, um, that that the musician wrote. And then it was made into a movie.
1: No, I haven't seen that.
0: Oh yeah, it's on Netflix. You should you should check it out. I mean, it's like a very dystopian kind of premise of the basically like the environment of the Earth is like all it's it's not it's not habitable anymore. There's some astronomical reason like it's like going out of the orbit of the sun or I don't know something like that. I forget. It's been a while since I saw it, but anyway, like they're all living underground <laughs> and they're, like the tunnels like to go um, to the where they live is like really really far down. So it kind of reminds me of that.
1: Yeah, it's always. Like I find these, um, and I know that a lot of people talk about that show, the Expanse, um yeah, when uh they talk about this book, um, but like I find these parts the most jarring to read and visualize because it's just the thought of being in this like it, it just evokes so much like claustrophobia in me, like yeah. just people people in spaceships just like hurtling into space forever and ever and. It's all darkness, all around, no sunlight, never, no sky. So it's just, it also speaks to how all of these like fake environments that they create, like even later on in Death's End where they basically just colonize outer space. And like every single place has to have some sort of resemblance to, to what life on Earth looked like. It just makes you think about how there there There's something just so organic in humans where we like need you know how like if if you don't put a plant in sunlight, it's going to wilt It seems like humans also need that sunlight just you know and, it, and not just physically but like psychologically right and right. it's fascinating to see the effects mentally and physically on people like like in the expanse when they're not exposed to some very very basic. Conditions that you don't even normally think about on earth,
0: yeah, I think even in the underground cities they were talking about how they have like a fake sky I think he I think village U was even confused when he first got there, that
1: yeah. Know, like, yeah, like the, they have but, to have a fake sky, you can't just right. be like you can't just not have a sky,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that always reminding me of um I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas and like the Paris casino, they have like the ceiling is painted like a sky, it looks like you're outside, and <laughs> and like these uh these pavilions like gambling, so that was reminding me of that.
1: Oh yeah, I, I have been. I have been to Vegas, but I don't know if I've been to that exact casino. You know.
0: But well, when you think about the series in general, like what are the parts that really stick out to you? That like you would consider your favorite parts of the series? Because it's hard. I, I think it's hard to pick a favorite book. I had to do it to pick Death's End because it's awesome. I mean, they're awesome, but Death's End is like especially awesome to me. But like, I guess like what parts would you consider to be your favorite?
1: I think like if I had to start with one that really um and, and let's get the least favorite out of the way um <laughs> OG's, uh, uh made up girlfriend yeah. um I agree with you like that wasn't that wasn't the best the best yeah. writing but I think there are some so I I was a big fan of um Murakami. I'm a big fan of um magical realism and I think this book actually has a few moments in it that feel kind of like magical realism one of them that that comes closest to that is the conversation with the ring Hmm. which kind of just like blew my mind it was like it just seemed so like fantastical but at the same time in 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 the form of metaphor it made so much sense i i know that it's supposed to be a very nonsensical conversation but it just seemed to make a lot of sense and What what really fascinated me about the the conversation with the ring is that the rings seem to speak in metaphors. Yeah. And it seemed like such a contrast from the Tricelarins who don't understand metaphors. It's almost like, how do you gauge the intelligence of of a species or, or a sentient being? Is it is it through like being through having like a command of like, you know, just science and physics? and just understanding the natural world, or is it to be able to think on a more elevated level and to speak in metaphors with, with another sentient being that you've never probably encountered in your life before.
0: Yeah. And um, in the language that like they just learned, right. Cause like they were talking about how they uploaded the language to them and they, and they was able to decode it really fast. And, and, yeah, messages. and, and yeah.
1: And see that what's fascinating about that to me is that like, what, what fascinated me is not how quickly the ring learned language yeah. and was able to transmit, you know, to have a hold of conversation, but the fact that it could speak in metaphor.
0: Right, right. And, yeah, actually, I, you, you had mentioned this uh, off air and I, I kind of I was looking through those chapters again and I, I, I pulled out some of the quotes that I think that you're talking about. So like one of the ones that was really interesting to me was it says the fish responsible for drying the sea are not here. Or sorry, what you said is really hard to understand. The fish who dried to sea went on to land before they did this, and moved from one dark forest to another dark forest. It's very like very deep, and it, it kind of fits into the I think the, the fairy tales, like how they talk about, because like they talk about it as like bubbles, right? Right. Yeah. So it, it's very metaphorical, and yeah, they, they pick, like you said they picked it up really fast out of just knowing, you know, prop, like they called it the Rosetta Stone, right? And so like, yeah, <laughs> I, I doubt the Rosetta Stone like had like a a way to construct metaphor so right <laughs> but maybe it's because like maybe is what he's trying to say is like because they're four-dimensional creatures they can kind of also see through through meaning that way maybe that's how he's trying ah, to construct that's it
1: so interesting to almost like see like ideas in multiple yeah. dimensions that's a really nice thought
0: yeah because you you've mentioned like yeah what what constitutes intelligence right so like these creatures like were they always four dimensional did they become four dimensional because of their higher intelligence or maybe like they're less intelligent because there's even higher dimensional creatures out there <laughs> right? right so it's, it's it's hard to know but like they're definitely more intelligent seeming to us because they can manipulate and you know traverse four dimensions uh, kind of natively
1: and 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 then the even more interesting thing is that there isn't even a living being within the ring it's that
0: right
1: <laughs> it, it's that it's a tomb it's like it, whatever it is it's just like a program speaking to them that's supposed to mm. I guess, echo the voices of whoever created it right um the, the the line that stood out to me the most actually is that when when the ring when i think it was kwanifan who asked the ring did you create did you create this this um fragment of the the four-dimensional fragment and and it it returns his question with another question which is you said you came from the sea did you create the sea hmm. that immediately made me think of um one of the earlier chapters in the book where yang dong is that her name Ye Wenji's daughter yeah is talking to one of the one of the guys in the lab and she asks him this random question, do you believe in God? And he's like, no. And then he shows her this simulation that shows that if life didn't exist, then like the earth probably wouldn't even have water on it. Whereas like your mind thinks that it life exists because the earth has water on it. The, for some reason, that line got me thinking about that where, you know, the ring asks, did you create the sea? And in a sense, it seems like the answer to that could be yes. Like if 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 that theory is true that the earth would not even be the earth that we know if humans or if all of life never had existed then yeah probably like whatever organism exists within a space kind of also creates that space, right?
0: Yeah, like a more of a symbiotic relationship between yeah, the planet and the the species, right?
1: Right. And it really speaks to that. And it, it, it just, it, it was such a loaded question. And I was like, hmm. this is the kind of stuff I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> and then there is a, also another, another moment. I think that's so beautifully written, which is when um, Loji, when it all suddenly clicks for him hmm. and he has this like, and I think it it it's so, I think it's one of his, um one of the author's better pieces of writing in the book where he just has all this imagery describing looking up at the stars. Okay. I'm going to read this quote, which is, I I just thought it was just so beautifully written at the precise instant. The icy water covered Loji's head. He saw the stillness of the stars shatter. The star field curled up into a vortex and scattered into turbulent, chaotic waves of silver, the biting cold, like crystal lightning, shot into the fog of his consciousness illuminating everything he continued to sink the turbulent stars overhead shrank into a fuzzy halo at the break in the ice above his head leaving nothing but cold inky blackness surrounding him as if he weren't sinking into ice water but had jumped into the blackness of space in the dead lonely cold blackness he saw the truth of the universe Mm -hmm. it's just like this this totally sublime moment where you can imagine this guy in like total darkness just looking up at the stars and it all just clicks. and then later on it says that you know after that he developed the same phobia of the stars that um was it ray ray diaz had had developed of the sun
2: yeah yeah
1: and it was just like and then and then how it all ends with like him saying to himself i am your wall breaker (laughs) <laughs> this is just such great writing, and I, I like when when this is adapted in, into a show. Like, I would really love to see that moment well done.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of like kind of internal dialogue there, right? So, like, how do you show that on? Like, that's always a problem with adapting books to film or to TV. I know anything, right? a, lo-
1: a lot. of stuff gets lost in yeah. um in the port in in just you know visual versus you know reading, um, which is also like the the nice thing about reading is that it's not. It's not instant gratification like it is when you're watching something. Yeah. It, there's so much buildup to, to moments like these. Another conversation that you and I had like like outside of this was about Sheen and mm. how like initially I was like, I hate her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like the more I thought about it, and this was just like my knee jerk instant reaction after I finished reading the book, and I was like, oh, she screwed everyone over. But then in the end, there's this like beautiful moment where Guanifan tells her it's not wrong to choose love. That's another moment that will probably like stay with me where he kind of just tells her this thing that she needed to hear so badly. Hmm. And I think like any human put in a position like that would need to hear. And he also goes further and says that it can't be any single person that dooms all of humanity. It's it's a collective it's it's a bunch of like collective decisions made by humanity as a whole, right? And I think I think that's kind of like the entire theme, I would say, of of, of all the books.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like more inevitable that the events would have happened eventually. Maybe they wouldn't happen that soon, but like in the cosmic scale of things, like they happen really fast, right? <laughs> right. Like the universe lasts for billions and billions of years, and within what? 400 years or whatever it was between the first contact between the Trisolarians and the the universe being, you know, kind of folded into two dimensions. It was really fast in the, in the scheme of things. So that probably would have happened eventually. Like, yeah, Singer would have seen the star somehow. Like, there's no way like that, would, that wouldn't that eventually happen. The rest of the universe is already fighting over resources, especially with like the axiom that there's like only a finite number of resources in the universe. So it was only a matter of time before someone found our uh, civilization. And that probably... Given the advanced state of the other civilizations, we probably wouldn't have gotten to that point. Maybe we had but who knows?
1: There's nothing like being exiled to Australia to make you think (laughs) about the finite nature of resources.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: And I found that I've actually lived in Australia for um, a few months. And it it really like when they said that everyone's being resettled to Australia, like I really like couldn't help but laugh because it's like I know I know the country. (laughs) and it's very it's so like it's so sparsely populated because you really can't live in the middle of Australia you Mm -hmm. have to live along the coast most like 70% of it is just dry and barren yeah and if you if you want to go further with that metaphor of this this loss of Eden exile to Australia works really well (laughs) (laughs) not that Australia doesn't have like beautiful, beautiful like landscapes and like even gar- forests and all, all of that stuff. But like when you go inland, all of that starts to disappear.
0: Yeah. Australia in general, I mean, I've, I have not been there, but I mean, yeah, in my mind, I it has like, yeah, really beautiful coasts and the inland is really harsh and really dangerous.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a very harsh climate. And so it's yeah. like, it, it's so fitting that like the trisolarans would be like, we'll get all of earth, you guys can have Australia. Right. (laughs) So what did you think about the trisolarins never being described like physiology?
0: I was okay with it. Yeah. Like, you know, like sometimes there'll be movies or, or shows or whatever that will show the alien. I'm thinking of like signs, you know, when it's like the aliens are so mysterious and, you know, like scary and um, it kind of gets you thinking and then you see them. It's like, Oh, all right. (laughs) That's not a big deal. So yeah, I think I think it was fine. I think it's I think it's even more interesting that he told us a story from their perspective. You know, like the chapters at the end of Three Body Problem, right? Um, without actually physically dis- or not not describing them that much. Like they talk about like how they communicate and how they have um, their family structures and their job structures and like their political structures, but like not actually what they physically look like because it's probably not important, right?
1: Yeah. So I was thinking it's not important, and then I um, like anything that remains unexplained, even if I agree with it remaining unexplained will bug me. So I, I went ahead and I read, um, Bao Shu's uh, book, which is basically a bunch of fan fiction. And the one part of that book I did find interesting was that, cause it, the other, the other loose, huge loose end for me was, uh, Yun Tianming. So I, I read that book because it also kind of explains what, it tries to explain rather what happened, what must have happened to him while his brain was taken by the Trislarans. And one of the interesting things that I, I found from reading that is that there is a description of the Trislarans and it's that they actually are bugs. They're like little tiny little creatures that are the size of like a grain of, um, a grain of rice. Oh, really? <laughs> and so um, in it, like, Yun Tianming, once he's, like, cloned and he wakes up and he's like, oh, why are there no Tricelarins around me? Like, where are they all? Maybe they don't want to show me their, you know, what they look like because I will be, like, terrified of their alien appearance. Hmm. And then later on, he comes to find out that they, they've they been all, all around him all this time. He just hasn't noticed them because they're so tiny. Oh. Um. And then it just at first I was like, no, I don't like that description because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, how could they create these like enormous, vast structures when they're so tiny? But then it got into like talking about how they don't think as individuals. Like, so if you take like any one trisolarin individual, it would be like really dumb if you the way they function is like as a collective unit of many, many, many individuals and that forms intelligence. Which I found really interesting, because it's we're so used to thinking of intelligence as like the accomplishment of individual human beings versus like imagine like every single person was not very smart, but then if you take like like a hundred people and put them together and you can literally put their brains together and then they're smarter. So that part really um, stood out to me. And then I, of course, got thinking about how they at the end of three body problem, they say they transmit a message to all humans, your bugs. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, that would make sense because it's like it's sort of like they're saying we're not bugs, you're bugs. (laughs) (laughs) So then it all then it all was like, okay, I'm okay with that with that possible um, description of the tri (laughs) Hmm.
0: Yeah. I I never would have considered that. I think I always assumed like they're kind of big blobby creatures. (laughs) I I would
1: have never thought of them as like these tiny little critters, but then that also makes sense why they want, would want all of humanity to like, just go away. (laughs) Yeah. Because they'd probably be afraid of humans who are to them, essentially giants.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder like, I, I don't know how, I, I know like you had said it's fan fiction and people describe it as such. Like, I wonder if like that is what's in Louis Susan's mind or if he's even like made any um, comments about it. I'm, I'm not sure that he has.
1: I don't think so. But like, all I know about the book is that he read it and he liked it. Oh, but really? then I will also say that the second half of that book was, it just got too out of hand. Like, he, mm. it, it's like he bit off more than he could chew. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and then it just turned into like a whole like, it turned into, like, its own, like, creation myth sort of thing. But then there was another interesting part of it that was, like, um, do you remember when um, Cheng Xin wakes up in, like, this, this new world where there's, like, tricelerin art? Yeah, yeah. Well, the book tries to explain that that's not actually tricelerin art, but it's stuff that they found while picking Yun Tianming's brain. So yeah, that was that was one interesting explanation um, mm. for that. So those were the only two things I liked from the book. <laughs>
0: okay. So would you recommend people read it, um, or just read the summary? I to would it?
1: say, <laughs> I would say read if you if you're interested, like I was in reading more about like what could have happened for you and Tianming, Maybe read half of it and then just discard the other half, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is kind of hard to do. But like yeah. I. I there there came a point in the book where I wasn't gaining anything of much value from it. And it also was interesting to compare the writing style to um Lu Sijin. Um he's 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 a much more like mature writer than Baoshu. And it really shows like like there are a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue in in the redemption of time that's like very cringy. So mm. I had to like really get through some of that. But it's good because like I feel like that was a huge like loose end. And I mean it was supposed to be like no you're not supposed to really focus on Yun Tianming beyond his fairy tales. But yeah, it's it's nice to think of like what happened to a character behind the scenes almost, you know? Yeah, definitely. So read fifty percent of it.
0: <laughs> so you had mentioned earlier that like you, that it seems like that when you talk about like bludgy's um kind of revelation uh where it's more like more literary yeah you know, those are more of your favorite parts but there are also various very scientific parts of, of the books you know i'm thinking of like project Sofon parts or the parts where they describe in technical readouts of how actually like yeah when center communication to the sun and like talk about like the physics of it and like there's a lot of like really hardcore like science stuff? Like how did that stuff strike you?
1: I do enjoy when like concepts like that are written out. It, it's all about the pros for me. Hmm. So like, even if someone is describing like a scientific fact, but it's like written in a certain way, like I won't understand it, Like, <laughs> but, like the technicalities of it, but like I can appreciate it. You know, like I, for instance, like I really am terrible at math. But I can admire someone who is so good at math, like, that they see the beauty in math. I think that's also how, like, one of the characters in Three-Body Problem is described that he he just saw numbers differently. Like, they formed, like, these elaborate, like, patterns and stuff for him.
0: Oh, yeah. I um, forgot his name. Uh, it was uh, uh, Shen Yufei's husband. The, the yeah. The guy who figures out the three-body...
1: Yeah, that was one of the characters that was, like, not significant enough for the name to, to remain with me. But, but the way he described, like, these um, mathematical concepts was, like, like, I really admire people like that who can, who can really see the beauty in these, like, cold, hard equations, which I can't see. So it's almost like something that's, like, out of my grasp that I'm just like barely touching the surface of and just like, you know, it's, it's almost like a work of art to admire from afar. The parts that I found the hardest to read, which is probably not going to be a popular opinion, but it was like Zhang Beihai's parts were really hard for me to read.
0: I, I get that, especially in the beginning when it's just like, it's just a bunch of military people talking about military stuff. Like, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's exactly why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the thing I, I didn't, appreciate when i first read it or maybe you know, even like on subsequent readings is like s- someone described him as the fifth wall facer which i think is a really interesting way to describe him and right. that he from the beginning had a plan of escaping right but like he couched it in like that he's actually a triumphant the whole time right he's like saying oh, we can do it we can beat the tristinarians i'm the only one who believes we can do it we can make high-tech ships we can do all this stuff like he kills a scientist because like they're developing old the technology and it, you really think like he's the only one who like has like a plan to dig the trust and but it, you know, he doesn't want 80 on you. <laughs> like he's like the only person who's like, understands that, you know, we need to get out of the solar system and get away from the trust and for the human race to, to actually survive. And he's right. Right. Like that's the only yeah. way we, we, that the human race did survive is by having those ships get, get out of the solar system and, and, and build those generational ships.
1: I found that really interesting in the context of, um, how they describe these ideas of like defeatism, escapism is like all things like you don't want to do. <laughs> and it repeatedly forces you to think in a sense about like, what is it that tethers a person to their humanity? Is it that you're going to put duty above all else? And what exactly is your duty towards? Like, is it towards all of humanity? Is it towards like a certain set of virtues that define humanity? And it's also interesting because once you're flung far out into space, all of those virtues and those ideals start to break down. And it makes you wonder like, okay, well, is it that you actually have to have a tether to the earth to be able to hold on to your humanity? And then in the end, you see Guan Fan, who has been like kind of like wandering through space for so long. And he was there for a lot of these, you know, really horrific events that happen on the ship. And you see that he still has his humanity. He's able to comfort Cheng Xin, who's like seen as the epitome of humanity. He's mm-hmm. able to comfort her and tell her you did the right thing. It It's kind of like it, may, it really makes you wonder, like, is this militaristic sense of duty just one aspect of clinging to one's humanity or like, it, it's just, it gets all these ideas in your mind about like, what would a human do right. if they were flung far out in space? Right.
0: Yeah. I think the interesting part is that like, he has all these different personalities, you know, of, you know, the different kind of facets of, of the human perspective on things. And like in, in those situations, you have Cheng Xin, you have Lo Ji, you have uh, Wade, you have Zhang Beihai, you have, like all these different ways that people and, and even the beginning of the like has like their perspective about uh, humanity's role in the e t o and yeah there's like just tons of different perspectives about how humanity would uh respond to both the crisis and uh, of of knowing that there's a alien race coming to invade us or you know knowing that we'd have to get out of there and how we would survive long term and what what are the important things and like what are the necessary things to for us to survive long term
1: yeah, and it's also really interesting how um there are these multiple periods in um in in the books where especially during the deterrence era where people fall into this false sense of of like, you know, this they fall into like this lull yeah. that like, oh, everything's going to be fine. The tricelarians are sending us art and right. <laughs> you know, everything's going to be fine. We're okay. And I, I, this is the other mark of like good sci-fi to me is that no matter when you read it, it resonates as relevant to like current events. I find that, isn't this how we treat global warming?
2: Hmm, We know
1: that it's going to come for us, but we, it's, it's, it's a threat that's not close enough.
2: Right. Right. So
1: we don't worry about it. I, I had read something about how like, you know, humans perceive risk and like threats. That if it doesn't trigger your flight or fight response, it, it's usually something that even if it's a certainty, it's like a bit abstract or it's like a bit far out there
0: yeah. that
1: you're like, oh, it doesn't concern my now. So I'm not really going to worry about it.
0: Right. Yeah. Actually, one of my co-hosts, uh, Tim, brought up that same perspective. Like he was thinking like when the crisis era first started, we don't see that in the books. Like or we read about it. Like we start three years in. So it's probably like mass freak out. Right. And in in, like the first like couple of months. Right. And especially if you think about our 24 hour cycle and like events coming so fast. Like, right. you know, like people buy it, like there's a mass freak out, probably like, you know, all these crazy stuff happened. But then like people realize like, oh, it's 400 years away. <laughs> you know like the the there's so much stuff that can happen it's not gonna happen to me it's going to my grandkids 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 grandkids, grandkids, grandkids right like it happened like way way down the line so yeah and and you can kind of see that i think when they start getting their false sense of security like when the um when the idea uh, wakes up in the future and they're like oh humanity is great now you know we advanced so much in 200 years we can take care of like one little drop of it it's no problem
1: right totally <laughs> and it's it's not even like threats that are like as far out into the future as um, as global warming. It's, we even behave that way towards threats that are like in the near future if right. they're not a 100% certainty like COVID. Right. Yeah. We were so like, ah, it's in China. It's not coming here. And yeah. sure enough, it came here. Right. <laughs> and yeah. that's no, when no, no it, it's almost it. like this um, reactionary mindset versus like preventive mindset.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe that's just like a a part of our culture, right? There's like too many problems to think about. And, you know, you kind of focus on like what's in front of you at the time. And if something seems like it's far out or it's like not probable or like it will not impact you, right? Then maybe you, you won't take it as seriously. Maybe you should. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is why it's interesting to explore like all these different, almost like schools of thought that form around this subject. Like there are some people who are like, oh, this is exactly why humanity doesn't deserve to like, you know, survive. Yeah. <laughs> and then there are like people who are like, oh, like, we're doomed anyway. So why bother? And then there's escapists <laughs> who are like, well, we need to figure out a way to get out of here. And that's also seen as being like anti in the best interests of the people. So when Kwan Yifan talks in the end about how like it's not any one single person who doomed us all. It's kind of like, yeah, it's all these like conflicting ideologies. And that's why it also interested me about like this, this collective intelligence versus individualistic intelligence, because I've, Mm. I've often like, especially within the scope of like the pandemic and stuff, I felt that we as people are you, especially some countries have this kind of culture more than other countries. We're like very individualistic and right. And it, Somehow often functions against the best interests of all of humanity when everyone is thinking as an individual. It's kind of like how those um, spaceships just start taking off by themselves yeah. and not caring about how they're just like incinerating everyone else in, in their wake.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know?
1: <laughs> and, and then um, AA has this idea that she's just going to disable all the ships so nobody can take off now. Yeah. And it's like, it's really, you see those two modes of thinking really clash with each other in that moment where it's like, if you're going to think about yourself as an individual, you're going to screw everyone else over. So, how about like, we disable everybody. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, if we have to die, we die together. And it's like such a different way of thinking than what we're accustomed to. I felt like there was one moment where, like, there's sometimes, like, you can tell that the author is speaking and not just the narrator, right?
2: Hmm.
1: Like, I felt like his whole commentary on, like, masculinity and manliness, I felt like that was all Zizhin, like, that was all (laughs) Uh, him. I really felt that because it seemed so kind of, like, out of place almost, Hmm. where, like, Chengxin wakes up and then she notices that all the men look like women. Right. And then there's this whole like dialogue that follows where it's almost like the author is kind of giving away what he really thinks. She, she like almost has like this moment where she like laments. She's like, how am I going to live in this feminine world?
0: Right. like femininity
1: has been erased. And I think she and, sees
0: like, uh, does she like start seeing like weight as kind of attractive because it's not feminized.
1: Yeah, but then also, <laughs> later on, you start to, he, he kind of, like, points out that, like, whenever she sees a man from the common era, he's usually presenting, like, ideas that make more sense. Mm. And he's also more manly looking. <laughs> and I, I really think, like, of course, like, you can find sexism in the books. And I think that the books kind of, like, almost, like, transcend all of that. Like, that's not what the books are about. But I fi- I found that one particular bit really interesting because then it got me, it kind of took me out of it and got me thinking about like, okay, yeah, he has written all these characters. And of course, Xin is like a strong female character, but she's also the one who's more of a sentimentalist right. versus Lo Ji. And a lot of the men who are more like of the strategists and they're more logical versus the women who are kind of like, you know, Ye Wen Ji. It's not even a matter of intelligence. Like the women are all, extremely intelligent and competent, right. but they're always falling victim to this sentimentality right. that the right. men don't seem to be as affected by. Did you notice that?
0: No, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I know you also wanted to talk about some other material that you thought was similar um, to to these books. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of you, you mentioned the, the cold equations and to serve man.
1: Yeah, so these were two short stories that I read um, when I was in um, in in my sci-fi class, and also um, I'm gonna n- name drop another book that kind of like was so profound to me at the time. It totally like informed a lot of my perspective, and I, I don't know if I can spoil these.
0: Go for it. I said at the I beginning. Spoil? <laughs> okay. we can spoil all media we talk about. So.
1: <laughs> so the first one is the Cold Equations, which is. Basically about there's a ship that's like, you know, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a cargo ship out in space. It's carrying a certain amount of cargo with a certain amount of fuel. It finds that there's a stowaway. It's this girl who's like a teenage girl trying to reunite, I think with her brother, Mm -hmm. um, or a family member of hers who has gone out into, um, into space, uh, whatever their destination planet is. It's been a while since I read this and. She thinks like she's going to hide away on the ship and she's going to arrive at this location and surprise her brother who she hasn't seen in forever. Um, The pilot of the ship realizes that there's no way that the ship is going to make it to the destination because the amount of fuel in the ship is finite and it hasn't accounted for the additional mass of this girl. So the rest of the book focuses on what to do with the girl like you have to get from point a to point b and you cannot get to point b or back to point a with this girl in tow it's just like this this heart-wrenching exchange that takes place between the pilot and the girl where he has to tell her that i'm gonna need to just i'm gonna need to basically eject you from the ship because mm-hmm. we're not gonna make it Yeah, and that's why it's called the cold equations because like, and what got me thinking um, about this story is that I think there's a quote in, in Death's end where they say it takes five minutes. Once you're cast out into space for humanity to turn to turn to totalitarianism. It's like when I was talking earlier about like what tethers you to your humanity. And ultimately when you're out there in space, it is it comes down to these cold hard equations where you see it in like the the three ships that have to basically face the prospect of annihilating each other to collect fuel basically so it was just like this when when we when we as a human species or a race we talk about like how great would it be to colonize mars how great would it be to like go out there and colonize space right I think these are really like cautionary tales about like what would that do to our humanity to go that far out there?
0: Yeah, people have those sort of grand ideas of like how we explored the Earth. It's like ingrained in our history, like well, we had these great explorers and they found they colonized these lands, and so people kind of attribute that to space too, without thinking of all the perils that those explorers have to go through too, right? Like people got scurvy and died on these boats, right? And so like what happens when they apply that to space when like there's no possible way for any kind of rescue or even like currently with space travel, right? Like, you know, you think about like Apollo 13, like if those astronauts hadn't been able to get back, they would just be floating in space forever, right? Right. And you, you apply that to, Going to Mars or going, you know, even further out there—it's not safe. Uh, yeah, so I thought I thought the story was—I hadn't heard the story before. You had mentioned it to me before, um, so I, I did read it, and I, yeah, super sad. <laughs> like I didn't I know
1: it's—it's sure. it's one of the really really sad ones, and it's—I um, think a lot of these um, these really deep and thoughtful works of sci-fi. I think a lot of them, what they do is they make you think about like. They make you think that, okay, science is great, but there's also like, you know, there are aspects of like human curiosity that don't lead to a good end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, not all, not all of it is like, you know, we don't need to conquer every frontier. If you choose to do that, then you do risk losing some of your, your humanity in the process. Yeah. And then the next short story that, that I brought up was, um, to serve man, which is basically like what happens with the Trisolarans, which is, there's this, um, uh, the the short story is set in a, in a world where aliens have made contact, they've arrived. And there's this, there's this uh, text that they have that um, humans are hard at work trying to decipher. It's called to serve man. And the h- aliens keep telling the humans, we're here to serve you. We're here to serve you. And they start making everything better. Like they make all like, All of these like bad conditions on Earth just get better. And then like the scientists or like the linguists who have been hard at work um, trying to translate this text. Ultimately, the ending of it is that um, to serve man is actually a cookbook. I I think a lot of people might be familiar with the story because I think it was a Twilight Zone episode a long time ago.
0: Yeah, actually uh, I watched it after afterwards it? too, yeah. And it's also from the Simpsons. The Simpsons has a, It's a similar gag. I don't know if I got it from this story or from the Twilight Zone, but they have
1: I haven't I haven't seen any of those, but like <laughs> I've only read the story. Um, but then it was like, "Oh, well like duh. Like they're not <laughs> making things better for us to, you know, serve us. They're literally trying to serve us to them."
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the the Simpsons has a has a great gag around it where like the they have like this book where it says like where Lisa finds the book and it says like it says like how to how to cook humans and she's like oh my god how to cook humans and like they blow off the dust and it's like oh how to cook four humans and they blow off the dust again it's like oh how to cook forty humans <laughs> it's like they go back and forth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's excellent. Yeah, but it's just like this chilling thing that makes you think like why do we think that it's such a great thing have contact with another intelligent civilization from outer space, like why do we think that that's great like we don't right. know their like we don't know their values we don't know like what their what their level of sentimentality is and how it would match up against ours or how like we think that it's bad to kill other people, but do they think that it's bad to kill an entire civilization like maybe not
2: right
1: so like and of course, like what's particularly chilling is that with the, the trisolarans are also coming from a place where their existing home, their existing planet is like not very great. You know, it's like.
0: Yeah, it's on the brink of falling into the sun.
1: Every few civilizations just get incinerated by one of the suns. Yeah. So it's like, why not? Why not go and conquer another planet? I mean, humans have done that over history. Like we've conquered other peoples for the sake of, you know, making things better for our country or like whatever the countries were at the time. Yeah. So it's like, why not? And so it made me think like on the one hand, I'm like, oh, it would be so cool to find signs of life somewhere else in the universe. But then I'm like, actually, maybe we're good. (laughs) (laughs) And then the final book that I really wanted to bring up was, um, it's more of an obscure book. I don't know if like a lot of people have read it, but it's called a Canticle for Leibowitz. It is by Walter Miller Jr. and it is, it's a book that takes place in a post-apocalyptic world that's been destroyed by nuclear warfare, and humans basically just revert back to a very 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 primitive way of life so basically back when religion was everything and religion kind of also informed our understanding of the of the natural world they go back to that they they basically they either burn or hide away all of the science texts cuz you know they're of course seeing science now as the enemy that was the cause of our destruction So and and of course, these humans who survived are they survived by being um, in underground bunkers always, always go underground. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they they come out and they decide science is bad. We're going to go back to a very, you know, um, antiquated form of civilization. And then the book, the rest of the book traces. The path that humanity takes from there, knowing that science leads to bad places. And the question that it asks is, if we could do it all over again, would, it, would we do it differently? Or would we do the exact same thing?
2: Hmm.
1: I think that was my one of my first experiences with sci-fi that really, really, really got to the heart of what it is to be a human being versus just like all these scientific discoveries and and um like a good a good contrast to these types of books is um the martian mm-hmm. which is like it really revels in its ability to calculate all these things like how the exact calculations for how you can grow potatoes on mars you know <laughs> like it will really indulge in that but what what books like books like um the three-body trilogy and also um a canticle for Leibovitz really. Kind of indulge themselves in is asking these bigger questions of like if we were to explain this aspect or if we were to conquer this aspect of the natural world, what would that do to our basic sense of humanity?
0: It's really interesting. I'll make sure to put the that book in the show notes. Is it, it that book is is pretty old?
1: It was published in 1959. I think it's interesting because around that time, you know, 1959, when this was written, um, sci-fi from that time really seemed to focus a lot on the, the, you know, the imminent threat of nuclear disasters.
0: Right.
1: And more modern sci-fi seems to be more focused, at least to me, on like space exploration, because like, you know, we've, we're so, we're so on the cusp of it. Yeah, and and whenever it's it's always like a cautionary tale, right? Even when you read about sci-fi that has to do with like artificial intelligence, it's always about like, well, <laughs> let's be careful how far we tread into this into this direction.
0: Finally, I want to talk about you know the the TV show that's coming up. What are your thoughts around that? Like, how how are we, like are you excited about it? Apprehensive about it? Um, I guess what there are you there isn't started? a
1: date yet, right? Like a tentative date?
0: No, not that I've heard.
1: No, me neither. I think I just, you know, I have a bit of a caveat, which is that, like, I really would hope that Weiss and Benioff are, like, really refreshed after their um, <laughs> their whole experience doing Game of Thrones because it really seemed by the end, you know, the final season of Game of Thrones, they really just got tired of doing this thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so as long as they don't do that to this, I think it's really fitting that they should be that they should be the ones to take this on because I feel like they're just masters at you know creating. Well, they didn't create the, the 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 plot lines, but or at least all of them. But they're good at building up that feeling in you that you're getting really attached to a character, you're getting really into this, you're thinking that this person or this family is going in things are about to happen to them and then suddenly someone's <laughs> head gets chopped off right <laughs> and i feel like i got a f- similar feeling when i was reading these books where it was like oh like you know during deterrence era i also fell into a sense of like a lull like oh this is so nice like the trisalarans are giving us art and maybe a new faction has taken over and they decided maybe they might come and live in you know in harmony with humans and they might want to share the earth with us. And like, I can see why people would think that way. And then suddenly it's like a complete fall from the edge of that cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think, I think they're, they're really good at um, translating these types of um, storylines to screen. So I'm really excited that they're, they're the ones behind it. So I'm really (laughs) excited to see it. Like I, I, I'm not like a, a, a book, a book purist, if that even makes sense. Like, I'll watch the show, I'll watch the movie, and I I will look forward to it, too. But I feel like a lot of times there's, as a reader of the book, you always feel like, ah, oh, the book did that so much better, and right. they just, like, <laughs> failed at this one, you know, this one thing. The good thing with Game of Thrones for me was that I didn't read the books
2: hmm.
1: Because uh, I tried to, I think it always ruins it for you if you start watching the show first because oh, your yeah. brain gets like trained to um anticipate like this instant gratification that I was talking about earlier and then the book requires you to read through just like many 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 pages of like um <laughs> George R R Martin describing like a banquet. Right. Lots of food. <laughs> Lots of food. I know. He seems to love describing the food. So <laughs> I I couldn't I couldn't get through that especially knowing how many books there are to go with yeah. like probably several banquet scenes (laughs) and then later on the fact that he has not yet finished that that kind of ruined it for me but that's why I'm really glad I read the books first in this case
0: (laughs) (laughs) but when I read it I so I actually watched the first season um before I read the books and then after the first season I went through and read the rest of the books that were out there only because, like, I'm so afraid of spoilers, like, and, like, because it was becoming a popular show, especially amongst my friends, like, I didn't want to be spoiled on anything. Uh, and I figured, like, if I read the books, then I would avoid all those spoilers. So that's, yeah. I thought I should oh,
1: because I sh- you, like, already spoiled it for yourself. By right, right,
0: right. <laughs> yeah, because I'll, I'll know what happens. And, like, that's, and so, I don't know, I'm, I'm really weird about spoilers that way.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. Like, there's this one podcaster that um, my husband and I listen to, and he Will not even like when he watches, you know, like when you go to watch a movie back in the pre-COVID days when things like that happened um, (laughs) and the trailers came on, he would like close his eyes and close his ears because he didn't want to be spoiled by trailers. So I totally get it.
0: (laughs) I did that with uh only with like Star Wars movies. I would I would do that. Like I would like not watch like the uh, the new Star Wars movies came out. I would like I didn't watch any of the trailers or anything. Like and especially but like it's
1: nice it's nice <laughs> going in knowing nothing sometimes. Yeah, like definitely. especially with these books. Like I went into it knowing nothing but aliens and Yeah. That was fun.
0: <laughs> I didn't even know it, but when I when I first uh the first day I, I listened to the audiobook for Three Body Problem. I didn't know anything about it other than it was quote unquote hard sci-fi. I didn't know that aliens coming or anything. So yeah, it was, it was really well, nice to have.
1: Yeah. I think there was also this thump, something that was a little bit misleading. I think it was a review at the in the back of the book, which was like, if you like computers, read this book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't like computers, but I'm going <laughs> to read this book.
0: <laughs> That's probably from the, the human computer part. So, yeah, and I do like computers. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it was fun for those who do like computers, too. But I feel like, you know, it doesn't alienate anybody who's not Particularly liking computers.
0: Totally, but like as uh, so, me personally, I'm uh, you know I study computer science and I do programming for for a living. So like the part in the first book when the they describe the human computer, like that's one of the big parts. Like when I think of like big moments for me, that that's one of them, because like it's like oh, that's my world. I get that, like I'm making computers.
1: Uh, what exactly um are you referring to are you referring to like the sophons or
0: no when, remember when they're in the um three body world they they have the the big army with all the flags going up and down and like um they're they're making the, oh the Hitler yes, Hitler. yes yes
1: yes yeah, yeah that stuff went <laughs> right over my head
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: <laughs> also, so what are they even talking about like what are they doing and yeah what <laughs> was that supposed to be like a metaphor for what they did with the sophons?
0: No, not really. It's just was like it not uh, unrelated. It's um, I don't think it's a metaphor, but it's just like showing like an interesting way of uh, technology and how their civilization works uh, by doing because like normally you, you know, so in like a, a computer architecture you'll have like uh, ones and zeros right and those are like denoted with like electricity or no electricity right so that's how they like have the flag going up it means electricity it's like one flag sounds zero right and so mm-hmm. by having a whole Mesh of and they said that like millions of people, right? And so, a computer, you have like billions and millions of you know transistors and you know, gates and whatever. And so, anyway, they're trying to show like the the army was able to kind of put this together and like get all those people working doing very simple jobs, but together to do the calculations to kind of determine it when the stable and chaotic errors are going to happen. Um, okay,
1: so-, so that that's like a very fundamental. Aspect of like how computers work.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very <laughs> like su- super low level of like how computers work, and so that's the kind of stuff. Like if you if you went to school for computer science or any kind of electrical engineering or anything just electronics, like you you, don't, you don't learn that stuff. So that stuff, yeah, resonated with me because like I did study that stuff. It's like oh, I remember like you know Ant-Gates AND gates and OR gates and whatever. <laughs> so
1: oh, I see. Yeah, so like. Like my husband is also um he hes he his his career started off as like a programmer he has um his his degree is also in computer science and like that that's where we lose each other you know wow. <laughs> <laughs> like when like i don't understand like what he does i don't understand no, yeah. it and it, it it's just as well because like i i appreciate it, but i don't understand it and what see when i was reading when I was reading that part about the computers, i wasn't like I wasn't, I guess I wasn't geeking out over the computer aspect, but more so, like, thinking about how, like, I guess this is how, like, now in hindsight, actually, I'm thinking about how, like, this is how the Tricelarans work in, like, what we were talking about earlier with the collective versus, like, the individual units. So that's probably how their civilization must communicate with each other, right?
0: Yeah, they they mentioned actually later on that, like, the Tricelarans, like, they communicate with, like, their their thoughts directly, and that's a big part of the second book too but like they communicate like with their brain waves directly and mm-hmm. so they're saying like well most of the stuff in the free body game is made up but the computer thing is real they actually did that <laughs> so that's a pretty pretty interesting right. thing so i would say if like um yeah if your husband's also a computer scientist and you're trying to get him in to read the books just show him that chapter it's like all right just read this one chapter then you'll maybe he'll get into it then <laughs>
1: oh that's, that's that's a good idea because like that wasn't even one of the more memorable parts for me. Like I was like, <laughs> Oh, whatever. This is just like, you know, what, where's the game? I was very fascinated by the, by the game because it was like, it was such a case study and how like indoctrination works mm-hmm. and like how you can get someone to believe in a certain thing. It's like this, like I always think about like how shady, like multi-level marketing schemes are Yeah, and how they like, Get you thinking about like one thing at first, and then they like build so many levels upon levels upon that. Right. And I was like, oh wow, like so the trisolarans are terrible at strategy, but they're great at this, like you know, trying to you know feed their entire like you know civilization or knowledge of their civilization into humans as like almost like this culty religiony thing. I don't know how much of that strategy came actually directly from them or once they teamed up with like the ETO and realized that there are people who are willing to be indoctrinated this way.
2: Yeah. That, I think that it's, they
1: I, kind of, it was like a team effort where the humans kind of told them like, this is how we work and this is how you can manipulate us. And they're like, oh, that's yeah. what we'll do.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like those people, the ETO eventually like end up worshiping the Trisolarans, right? And so like they want to prophesize their 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 religion right they want to show other people like the how great the trash are and so like there's probably more technical minded people who are good at yeah like multi-level marketing and those kind of things and saying like all right we can make a game to recruit people yeah it took me a while to understand there was actually a recruiting tool like i like the first couple times i went to the three body world i thought it was like oh this is the book's going to be it's going to be talking about this cool game right <laughs> yeah
1: uh, and- it was it was really interesting how like it was like all these puzzle pieces with like this weird imprint thing that's happening on um yeah. on the retinas of like you know Wang meow, and then all these other people start like seeing things and and then, like, what does this have to do with the computer game and right. <laughs> how it all comes together in the end? and it was like, oh, like it's like it's like almost like you're seeing like little snapshots of what's happening, but then collectively it all does make sense. Yeah. I've seen a lot of like shows and books and stuff that try to create these little scenarios that are supposed to come together at the end, but they don't quite come together as nicely.
0: Right. But it yeah. was like
1: really nice to see in this that it does actually come together pretty nicely.
0: Yeah. When I was, when I was telling my friends about this book, like, yeah, I would say like the first book, like all the mysteries I set up, they answer them, right? In a very, in a very satisfying way. It's not like, yeah, you're not like going to be like- left, At yeah. the
1: end of something like that has to be good.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, the it's it's hard to say it's plausible, but it's like, it's understandable, you know, that like, like obviously it's not plausible that like you can unfold the proton into 11 dimensions or whatever, but you know, right. like you can you can say like, all right, well, it's, that is the way they did it. I kind of get it, you know, it, but it's like an interesting way to kind of think about it, like how they would have manipulated the people- to, um, to end up like kind of worshiping them and not, they didn't do it directly even like that is people I think are just open to, to those kind of things. Right.
1: Right. Because I, I often wonder, cause I, I, you know, it's like a hobby of mine to watch like cult shows. Mm. <laughs> not really, but, um, <laughs> I, I, I've watched a few and I've come across a few, um, multi-level marketing schemes. And I always think like, how do these people fall for this stuff? And then it just seems like some people just have this mindset where they will very, very readily welcome this into their lives. And it's almost like the, the job of the person who's like orchestrating all of this is to identify those people really well. And it's just like really interesting how that all came together. And of course, like computer games is a really good strategy for that, because like we all know that like. Gamers get, like, super into their games, right? Right. Where, like, it it becomes, like, the, the line between reality and games starts to blur. And, of course, this this is further um, exacerbated by the fact that this is, like, VR type a VR type of game. So it was, like, kind of, like, brilliant. Like, of course, like, that's how they would gather sympathists for the Tricelarans.
0: Anything else you want to talk about?
1: No, it was just... This is really fun to talk about. I feel like i I was finally able to like um put word to all the thoughts that I was having after um reading the books because it's like you don't really think about it until like you 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 read a book that's like really makes an impression on you and then you're like, "Oh well, how will and i I almost get like afraid to like launch into like another book because it's almost <laughs> like it's almost like well how is how how is this gonna top that like it's not." So, yeah. so yeah, it helps to have these conversations and, and I think this podcast will probably be even more, um, like, I hope you continue it after, um, the, 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 the show series comes out. Cause that'll be a lot of fun, I think.
0: Yeah, that was always my intention. It was to finish the books in time for the show to come out, so we can then talk about the show uh, once yeah, it's done.
1: Yeah, that that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, because that's what we used to do with Game of Thrones. Like every right. episode, we'd wa- we'd listen to a podcast about it afterwards.
0: Same. Yeah, that that's basically how I got my idea to do it. Because I love those kind of like rewatch um, or watch along kind of podcast series. So that's that's why I I wanted to do something similar for another series that I I didn't see another podcast that does. Something similar, so I thought would be kind of a good way to get in early before it probably becomes pretty popular, there, right? I would imagine if it's like a Benioff and on Netflix, and you know it's going to be big, so maybe we can get yeah, on the people floor are
1: going to turn to podcasts <laughs> a lot then.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially if, yeah, these complicated concept, concepts and uh, and then and, and themes. So hopefully, people yeah, hopefully people will find us and listen. So I've, like, I really appreciate uh, talking to you. It's, it's been a great time.
1: Same. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to participate in this series, please leave comments, emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydrate pod. Thanks.